led Spud away to the cells. Right. And so if I'd been standing one place ahead or one place behind, I can't remember, in the queue, I would have been in train spotting. But unfortunately, I was standing in the wrong place. But anyway, there was a one lunchtime. I was there for about five days, and there was one lunchtime, and uh, I was um, – just sitting having uh, like the cat, like the lunch at the canteen bit, and uh, he just came over with his tray, sat down next to me, and uh, we were talking about football. And that was it. Excellent, excellent. Um, you know what? Transporting is not an insignificant film. No, um, it's one of the most important movies I think have been made over the last 20, 30 years or so. So if you if you had if you imagine if you actually got into the footage there, that's crazy, man. Missed yeah. um, that. That's massive. So we're talking about being an extra, folks. Does want anybody here being an extra in either a movie or a TV serial? I know one of our friends, Jim Beresford. I don't know whether he's watching it now, but Jim's Jim Beresford was uh, was one of the Northmen in Game Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, yeah. Jim, Jim, there you go, Michael. So he's he's like because he's bald and he's got a beard and mustache, and I think he lives in Northern Ireland. So he's like the ideal profile, also logistically obvious. And he got in, and I think he's got a few shots where it's actually obviously him, although I've not been able to watch it back to take a look. But how crazy is that, that you're actually on set and doing this stuff? Um, yeah, My aunt's a casting director, so I was in loads of things when I was at university. You used to get paid like 50, 60 quid a day, and mm. uh, you'd get paid the same amount whether you were there for eight hours or whether you were there for only like 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, I've, you know. I've, I've done it. I've been an extra. I think I was in um, Ophidia St. Pet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. The, With uh, Jimmy Nail, Jimmy Nail, no Clark, all those guys. I was, yeah, they, yeah. They, they did like Ophidia oh, Saint Pet in Thailand or something, and they just needed some like generic Asian person. Um, so they were casting for all these like, oh yeah, if you're like uh, East Asian, Southeast Asian, turn up. I thought, all right, I'll give this a shot. Um, and, um, and yeah, hundred quid, hundred quid basically all day to, to sit there and put stuff on, walk stuff around, and, and whatever. I'm in it. Well, I think. I, th I think I made the footage, but um, it's yeah, funny. You, it funny you say that because I mentioned my aunt was a casting director, and that's why I was in a lot of things. She is still a casting director, and she casts Vera. Um, now, Vera, as you know, is set in the Northeast, and uh, every single episode of Vera gets a lot of focus on uh, Twitter for the casting and the diversity of the cast, and uh, it's an ITV production. And the, um, most of the tweets are like ITV, so woke, so woke, blah, blah, blah. There aren't <laughs> that many black people in the Northeast. There's no Asian people in the Northeast, you know, because like almost like every episode, there's like several people who are not white. And of course, almost everybody in the Northeast is white. So yeah. um, has she been briefed to do that? Um, or uh, how does that work with, with, with sort of representation? It's very, it's very topical. Um, and I, I'm in two minds on it. I, I think obviously Asian people exist in the Northeast. I'm from the Northeast, but it was rare. I was like, you know, one of very small numbers, less than one percent, I guess. Yeah. But, um, I actually do. I do know the answer to all of that. But I, given this is a live show and it'll be on the internet forever, I, I, I'm, I can't say. I can't say on this. I could tell you privately what the kind of policies are and things like that, but I can't it, say it here. Yeah, very. It's it's interesting topic. Topic wise, I do agree. Like you need to, representation is important because if if you got young people growing up and they don't yep. see their people on TV and stuff, I get that hundred percent. It was a long time before you actually saw any Chinese person on TV that wasn't a fucking kung fu master, um, or 
you know, some sure. sort of like stereotype. Um, sure. And, you know, yeah. I actually remember who that was. It was, it was that, it was a Chinese guy who did um, an advert for Halifax or something. Um, and he was just a dude getting a mortgage. And that was it. So in other words, his race, his ethnic identity was not the point of him being there. And it wasn't even referred to. It was just, he was just the dude happened to be Chinese. I remember it to this day. I think, Good. you know what? That might be the first time. And it was only 20 years ago this happened. It might be the first time I saw a Chinese person look like me that wasn't a, a Kung Fu guy or some sort of guy in a laundromat um, or, or some sort of like illegal immigrant or something. And you know what? It, it kind of makes a difference. It fucking makes a difference, mate. Um, no, it's good. Absolutely. Times are, times are changing, which is which is good. Yeah. But at the same time, at the same time, there's an argument of, look, do you want to represent what is reality or what you aspire things to be? And, you know, it is true to say that sometimes... You know, if you're if you're representing a certain community on a in a context, you know, if you if I was doing coal miners in the 1980s or whatever, ain't gonna be many Chinese people there, and it's probably gonna be 100% white. So it'll be it'll, it'll it'll take you out of the experience if you suddenly had a massively racially diverse cast in that context in that scene. So yeah. you know, there's an argument where you've got to have some historical accuracy, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's a difficult one. Just as well, my aunt is not on Twitter because she gets a lot of messages directed to her from racists, um, mm. as you as you can expect, as, as you would expect, as does the producer. But anyway, she's not on Twitter for those reasons. And maybe a good thing. Um, I saw you check out with it earlier today, Adam. And it probably is a, a wise thing. It's a massive distraction for sure. It's just busy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, folks, listen. Welcome to Brain Food. Bake fresh. We've kind of segued straight in. It is relevant. It is recruiting. <laughs> We're talking about casting for on-screen stuff. Um, and and yeah, it's probably a brain food lab we should do, actually. Like, how do you actually get into the creative arts? You know, we, we actually don't know anything about the rec how recruiting works there. Um, you know, is there such a thing as a ca is a casting director effectively a recruiter? Kind of is. Um, so, so yeah, uh, be quite, maybe get your aunt on or something. It'd be good to talk about. Anyway, purpose of this is actually to review the newsletter. So I hope everyone's read the newsletter from, from uh, uh, yesterday. Um, I think we've got something like a 37% open rate to date, which is not bad after 24 hours. Um, after another day, usually tops into 44, 45% or whatnot. Um, so that's when I guess all the Americans start reading it and so on. So um, Adam, did you read it? And if so, what was interesting uh, for you? Right. So you just said something about like the creative professions. So let's just get on with that one. Um, wealth, uh, the Smithsonian Institution have shown proof that wealth is a uh, has a direct link to people choosing to work in an artistic profession. So if the household income is uh, goes from $50,000 to $100,000, then it is twice as likely that the person will uh, choose to be you know, an artist or an actor or a musician or something like that. Um, when the household income goes from $100,000 to a million dollars, it's 10 times more likely wow. that the person is going to choose to be because they probably don't have any fear they're going to end up destitute on the streets. Whereas, you know, we've all heard the expression of like, I'm just a poor artist or, or whatever. Very, very few people make much money beyond, you know, the kind of minimum wage, really, if, if you're a, a, 
a jewelry designer or a, in pot into pottery or something like that. But if you don't have a mortgage and you've got parents who can bail you out, etc., then it's a lot more appealing. And it's a, a lovely thing to do as well, but it's not exactly yep. crucial. And, and you know what? I, I don't denigrate this at all because I, if I was born into a rich household, I probably would do the same um, because you compare pursuing an artistic or creative uh, passion um, and you could do that kind of on it for a living at low risk because you've got the backstop of, of the family wealth to help you. Then, 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 yeah, I can imagine that being more attractive than spending 10 years grinding away in an accountancy firm or whatever it is. Um, so so I, I totally respect the decision, even though you can understand that you know, it kind of underlines that, you know, if, if you have the family wealth, it gives you the opportunity to take, take more risks. Very similar to the startup, by the way, um, uh, where a lot of startup founders, they're, they're, they're basically people that are able to take risks um and 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 next, you know, if you can do that then your opportunities will increase so so yeah another theory I, go, on, go on i was gonna say I'd, I'd never thought about it in the context of a startup founder but you're probably right I, I was gonna say it does it does link to other things though so um for example i mean you know i'm not sure what school bear grills went to but you don't find very many like people who go from poverty to being a professional explorer or professional adventurer um you know and then the other one would be sport like formula one you know mm. you, you got to pay to play there's a minimum you know or a polo player or something there's a quite a few different types of sports where professional sports yep. where you know you're not going to get somebody from the local comprehensive ends up doing it well very famously the the williams sisters were, were a massive breakthrough uh, in tennis yeah. Um, precisely because they didn't come from privilege and actually playing tennis, that's not cheap. You've got rackets, plus you've got to access the court and you typically need to pay for that. Um, so that's totally different from like throwing a ball around or kicking a ball around in a park, which is free. So if you don't have, and you pay for coaching, you pay for all that type of stuff. William sisters obviously famously had their father doing all that, but they broke through um, really against the odds because it's a middle-class sport, golf the same. Um, uh, my cousin's son is actually a very talented um, go-kart racer. Um, and I think you know, he's, he's doing really well at his age. Um, and I expect that he will go on to, to he's got a shot at doing something in that, in that field, it looks like. Um, but he's been helped. You know, that's not a cheap thing to do. Driving lessons, <laughs> getting him around the circuit. No. That's, it's like riding a horse. You know, yeah. you've got to have a certain level. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think certain sports... Um, are definitely as, as sort of sorted out in terms of family, institutional wealth, um, and the creative side as well. There's a final thing I'll add to the creative side um, is I think a lot of people might might be hesitant to directly compete with their uber successful parent. Do you know what I mean? Like if your if your parent was some entrepreneur that made X amount of millions, you can either just directly go and follow follow father's path or mother's path. Or you can decide, you know what, that seems like a massive grind. I may not ever get there. Um, why don't I just take a completely different path that cannot be compared to this person? Um, and I'll just forge my own way. And uh, yeah, I'll be a, you know, a, a, a writer or something or whatever it might be. So you're not directly competing with that person who's always been, you know, superior to you because, you know, by dint of them being a parent. Um, so anyway, folks, really, really interesting. I don't think you make any moral judgments on it, but it is actually fascinating to observe the correlation between family wealth and the careers that people end up pursuing.
Two, just on that, there are two people who have been brave enough to follow their parents uh, <laughs> are fighting each other on Saturday, of course. That's right. That's right. Um, you bank and Ben, right? Um, yes. Crazy, crazy. I mean, they're both talented fighters. I look forward to it. I don't know who's going to win. I think Chris Chris Jr. might be too big for him, basically. I think there's a weight difference, even though they're playing ca- fighting cash weight. Um, but Connor is he, he's aggressive. Like his fighting style, yeah. Even more so than his dad. So it's almost like for life, they've inherited the styles of their father. <laughs> even like in interviews and stuff, it's like literally inherited the same thing. Yeah. And hopefully it's a good fight. It's just a shame there's a size size-wise that, that there's a that they're not in exactly in the same class, um, which means that you know you can't really judge the fighters in that in the same way. Um yeah. but anyway, um give us another one, mate. Uh okay. Um so yeah, I one that I didn't, it's not what I was expecting it to be. So the one that uh, someone's pretending to be me. Mm. I was fully expecting what it was, what it was, was going to be people cloning somebody else's profile online in order to secure like gig appointments and then just getting stuff done behind the scenes, pretending to be other people and stuff like that. But actually it was even more sinister than that. Um, this software engineer i think he is um had his connor tumbleson had -hmm. his profile cloned on github and people were using upwork to secure gigs and then they were going and finding people with lookalike skills to sorry he didn't have his profile cloned but they were finding people with the same skills and asking them to turn up for the interview pretending to be Connor Tumbleson because they had the same accent um, and wouldn't arouse any suspicion and then expecting that person to just disappear into the background i it, it was utterly bizarre like i can't think of a i can't think of a less re- um repeatable way of doing something and it was pretty strange but um that one was interesting for sure. It, it, it's it's very complicated, uh, and you've done a decent fist of uh, explaining it, actually, Adam. But um, just to underline what, what was going on, um, basically there was uh, people were paid to pretend to be someone else in order to convert the interview, um, and the interview they get the job, um, but the job would then be delivered by the person who was initially doing the payment. Um, and the idea was, I, I, I can't understand the motive of it, um, but it seems that the original person that was doing the payment didn't want to do the interviews. So in other words, he, he may have felt that he could deliver the work or he could outsource the work as a software engineer, um, but he didn't want to do the interviews. He thought he wouldn't convert them. Uh, so instead, what he did was apply for jobs by scraping someone else's data, get his copies, profile, etc., stick it on Upwork, apply for a job by Upwork, but obviously, when the interview came to pass, um, he was, you know, couldn't, in, it was an English language problem, I think. And he then employed um, someone else, a random developer, to come in and just represent this person on a non video call. So it was, it was an audio only call. So he could pretend to be this person. And one of the people who were, who were, who were um, uh, paid in this way basically found out that well, this is all, what it was all about and ended up contacting. The person who was uh, uh, scammed or cloned, 
the identity of the person being cloned and said, listen, this is going on. So really bizarre, worth a read. Um, the reason why it's worth a read is because I'm hearing more and more from different people that interview fraud is actually occurring. Um, so in other words, like I'm getting recruiters messaging me saying, you know what? I'm not sure that the person we hired remotely is actually the individual that went through the interview process. You get me? Yeah. So you, wow. you might have an you might have an ace person do all the technical tests, do the interviews, all well and good, outstanding. He converts it, then disappears, but another person assumes his identity and just like it, that's the Slack sort of avatar. Um, you know. When the person so, coordinating this, I, I I got the sense that it was probably that they weren't going to be ending up doing the work. That it was a business development exercise, and they were just using it as a funnel for a funnel for revenues. And they probably had a team of people based wherever in the world actually delivering the work. But yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it was quite well coordinated. Like they provided cheat sheets and everything, like how to be Hung Lee. Right? This yeah. is the type. This is the way that Hung speaks. This is what Hung's interested in. You know, name drop this and this. You know, actually prepped the prepped the fake interviewee. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm crazy. just surprised they find enough people to actually bother. To, to I mean, I I would I would say no if somebody said, "Could you maybe turn up for an interview?" Say you're Scott McRae. I'd go, no. In this case, this guy did say no, uh, which is why he was exposed. But um, but the, the the way in which it was pitched was that hey, your job. It's actually it's an actual job. You know, the, the the person was never told that you're you're there fraudulently. So your job is actually to represent us as our company, um, but we want you to do all the client facing work. So it's, it's, it was pitched as a client facing um, job, right, on Upwork. Um, and the person you speak to is a client. You you close the client. You got to pretend to be Adam. That's fine. Just answer the questions. Adam's going to do the work. He's he's busy. He can't do the interview. Okay, great. Um, and that's basically how the entire thing was pitched. Um, Obviously, nothing. Some I don't. I think this is probably an exceptional example, but it is a very interesting one simply because it, it, it exposes um, the flaws in the process and, and how exactly are you meant to do any due diligence on this? Because um, you can't track the work. Um, how and there's already stories of people running multiple jobs. Um, that you're just logging in with different sort of computers, even. Um, so candidate fraud is a thing um and employers need to figure this out like how do we do it i'm actually going to be doing um a um a webinar with a company called flow career who reckon up to 10 percent of all remote interviews on their platform um uh, they they do interview outsourcing by the way um so a little bit similar to what you guys do interview outsourcing in other words they've got trained people to do the interviews for you um as as a recruiter right so let's say you're hiring software engineers. They've got a bunch of software engineers to help do the technical interviewing. Um, uh, but what they're saying is on their system, they've been able to flag up 10% of people going through their system. They're saying that's potentially fraudulent. So we're going to explore why that is and, and, and how they know. Um, and uh, hopefully some of that information we can share with people who are watching this because at, at a local level, one-to-one -one as a recruiter, this is probably happening. You don't even know. Um, yeah. How are we going to know? We don't. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I don't quite I don't quite see this as social experiments, but as the article suggested, but LinkedIn ran social experiments on 20 million users over five years. So this was all to do with the 
um, it, it gave some people better, it gave some people more recommendations in people you may know of people with more shared connections and other people more recommendations of people with less shared connections. So in other words, some people got a lot more like deep connected, deep connected people recommended and other people got those with weaker ties. And what it's suggesting is those people with weaker ties were actually more useful to each other from a career's perspective. And uh, those people with higher numbers of shared connections were actually less uh, useful to each other. So gets you thinking about a lot of different things. One is, yeah, LinkedIn are kind of playing God a little bit here by actually making a different experience for users. And I'm just, I know they've got to A-B test and we're part of the system. But at the same time, some people's careers and therefore lives may have accelerated because they fell on the right side or the left side, depending on you know, yep. what happened. There's, there's definite ethical issues there, um, even though I do believe it's a secondary thing. I think Bass, our friend Bass, kind of was very critical of the, the ethical argument. And I kind of align with that because you got to allow a platform, I think, to do a little bit of this, even though you can see at an individual level, some people have probably got a little bit of an artificial boost. Um, might have been a life-changing thing. So other people might have got a, a, an artificial a penalty, which again might have been life penalty. We, we, life uh, changing. We don't actually know. Um, but what we do know, and I think this is why the experiment itself is valuable, is that it kind of confirms a piece of sociological theory which we, which we've had for a long time, uh, which is the strength of weak ties. Yeah. So, a guy called Mark Granavetta first um, uh, studied this in the 1980s, um, and Basically, the theory is, is that you've got a lot of good mates. That's great. Um, however, your good mates all know each other because if they're all good mates, you're, you're going to know your good mates, good mates, right, over time. Um, now, that's great, but it doesn't actually help you as much as having a less good mate um, because that less good mate will have good mates that you don't know. Um, and therefore, you should always try and cultivate lots of weak ties as well as lots of strong ties but you can't just rely on your strong ties because you'll effectively enter into a smaller network. Um, so if you want to have a broader network with greater reach and greater information discovery, you want to basically have lots of weak connections. Now, weak and strong um, are two terms that have value connotations to it in the sense that we like to think strong is better and we, like, we think weak is worse. However, so, so the terminology is not ideal. But if you can strip away the value judgment on those, what, what it really means is strong means like it's just very thick, it's very rigid. Uh, weak means you've only got one one connection with that person. You met him in a pub uh, X amount of time, you know, uh, when you're watching a football match somewhere, or you know, you uh, uh, you encountered him at a conference at one point, and you don't actually know him that well. Strong ties where you have multiple things, right? Went to school with them, played rugby with them, um, they, they started university together. Lots of lots of connections. What you want is lots of smaller, weaker ties, um, and that's a career accelerator for you. So I think on the on the on the side of remote, by the way, this should promote weak ties. I would imagine because a lot of the times we'll encounter more people that we don't actually know each other, other than through something like this. So yeah, um, don't um, don't uh, uh, denigrate uh, the weak ties. Worth studying, by the way. Mark Granavetta, he's a bit of a legend in the sociology world. 
just on this, I, I have I have regularly made a point of not hiring like family, not hiring people from my social circle. I don't do that. However, I have regularly hired people who I have got mutual friends with. Um, and I think that there is a there is an inbuilt trust in that situation. Um, and that is because you know they're less likely to shaft you or vice versa. Yep. So, you know, the I also think that people with like strong ties, they're more they're more likely to be colleagues and therefore they're not going to recommend their colleague, you know, to others for jobs and things like that. Um, so there's, there's, there's quite a few kind of logical reasons for this, but it's a very interesting uh, piece of information. I think, you know, for your own business, definitely strong ties might be better for us recruiting um, because of these trust factors that you mentioned and, you know, the moderating behavior of this, of the third person that has a strong relationship, right? Uh, as you say, they're not going to do, 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 they're going to try and do the best job because of this relationships at stake. Um, when you're job seeking, though, it's the opposite. So you're looking for a job. Um, uh, you'll exhaust the strong ties really quickly, first of all. Um, so the, the overall volume is going to be lower. Um, but if you have lots of weak ties, you'll, you'll discover more opportunities that you would never have imagined and because you, you have no visibility of this weak ties network. Um, yep. so, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's maybe a question of are you, are you the business owner or are you actually a job seeker? Anyway, worth yep. the read on that. I've shared the article in the uh, chat stream. Okay, uh, give us a couple more, mate. Um... Oh, yes. Um, the, the jobs employers just can't fill. So um, the bit that I was most interested in because I had a big meeting this morning with a hospitality business was uh, in the hospitality, the food service um, mm. aspect, right? So this is based in the USA. The average person working in food service earns just under $21,000, which is, uh, if you've got a family of four, that's below the poverty line. Yeah, yeah, well, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In 2017, that industry had 72% attrition, and that's gone up to over 86% over the last couple of years. There's a big wave of baby boomers, of course, retiring, and specifically in that industry, big wave of baby boomers who just go, I'm not interested in getting COVID, I'm not working in that food service, working with the public, you know, kind of environment. So it, undesirable conditions, lots of different aspects to it. The other thing I found really interesting was that, um, you know, net reduction in immigration um, is also a big factor in, you know, the jobs that just can't be filled. And of course, that extends to things like construction and hospitality, all sorts of different areas. But in the US, there's been a 50% drop in immigration in the last couple of years, which some of that might be COVID related and some of it might be the lingering Trump factor. Mm. So, you know, there's um, a lot of th a lot of stimulating things in that article and my recommendation is to go and take a look at it and uh, digest it. You know, we had a, a, a Brimfield Live last Friday. We talked about labor force reallocation and all of the experts were saying the effect was actually quite small. Um, so these are people that I deeply respect because they, they study the numbers on it. 
And I think overall, um, on aggregate, that's right. In other words, people tend to move within industry rather than out of industry. I think that's clear. Even in recruiting, we can see that's true. However, I think there are certain industries that literally people don't want to enter at all and have attracted quite a lot of people. Hospitality, food service, 100%, that is that's probably the most prominent one uh, yeah. where people are leaving and they don't want to do it. Um, and let's not forget, these jobs are never very well paid. In the first instance, hours really tough. Um, there's public health issue now, of course. Um, the, the customers have got worse, clearly, because they're now getting poorer service, et cetera, higher prices. They're arsier, if you like. Uh, you have to, you know, there's a period of time where we actually ask rest, like wait staff and people on bars um, to, to effectively be like security people and like bounce non-mask wearers out and stuff like this. You know what I mean? And check vaccination stuff, which, you know, you should do. But if you're forcing these people to do that, you're basically saying to that individual who you're paying a really low wage to, you know what, sir or, or ma'am, your, uh, your responsibility is also to operate a security for the premise. Um, and that involves confrontations with random members of the public at you know at risk of at risk of getting punched. Like of yep. course you don't want to do that. So so yeah, I think a lot of these 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 um, uh, uh, industries are going to be really hammered. Uh, uh, hospitality recruiters, I don't think you you need me yet to, to to confirm this. But if you're listening to this, I'd be interested to know you know how you how you've experienced this and indeed what you're going to do about it because. It could well be there's no there is no candidates there. It's a legitimate description. It's not a euphemism. It's like legitimately, there's not pe no people want to do this anymore. So what do you do? Um, anyway, it reminded me of um, it reminds me of the. So I, I mentioned to you, I in fact I posted it on LinkedIn that I I read an article over the weekend from the local newspaper in Glasgow about eleven businesses that closed in um, September in Glasgow and just in my city. I mean, there was mm. many that closed, not just 11, but it was a focus on these 11. And I was looking at it going, oh, that restaurant closed. That's a shame. It was really good. You mm. know, that factory closed. I'm surprised that's been there for like over 100 years, things like that. And uh, as I mentioned on LinkedIn, Patisserie Valerie closing in Glasgow Central Station. Glasgow Central Station is the biggest. It's like outside of London. It's about the third biggest train station in, in the UK in terms of like passengers. And if Patisserie Valerie can't sell enough cakes to warrant being there in a real prime position, it just shows, you know, things are, things are changing. It's yeah. a slightly different point I'm making here, but it was, it's back to that food service thing around, you know, the, I've got a friend who runs a business which operates cafes in hospitals. And uh, he's absolutely his wit's end because, you know, first there was the pandemic then there was the problem with getting, you know, actually getting people to come back and work. And now it's the ingredients, you know, the price of the price, actual pr price of running your business is it's he's nervous. It's barely worth doing it. Dude, there's three there are three force majeure type scenarios there. Like it's not about your ability to operate a company. It's not about your competence as a manager. Uh, it's literally external things where you cannot control and you couldn't really predict um, that has come in and just completely changed the game on you. Um, very, very tough. Uh, very, very tough indeed. Cool. All right. Give us one more, mate, and then we'll, we'll close it off. Okay. Uh, let's let's finish on a lighthearted note. Um, there was a Twitter thread with some uh, description was unhinged nanny requirements. <laughs> That's right. Right, so people saying, 
people were people po posting like I need a nanny because the schools have gone back. Um, here are some here are some of the things that must that must be the case, and some of the ones that I wrote, wrote down some of the ones I, I I liked most. You must have a master's or higher so that our kids are intellectually challenged. And your bachelor's degree in English it does not make you clever. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't realize it was such a highly qualified job. Um, you need to be between 24 and 28 so that you can uh, keep up with the physical demands of our children. So what, 23 and 29 are off scope? Between 24 and 28? I've never heard of anything so ridiculous. Except, yeah, ideally you're going to be a Trump fan. And if you are, we'll reward you with paying you um, basically off the system so that we can pay you $10 an hour and that'll be equivalent of $15 if we were to pay you, you know, through the tax system as, as you would normally get paid. Um, you've got to be able to get on with our bulldogs and, oh yeah, don't think that you're going to be living with us. You won't because that right is, that privilege is earned, not assumed. You know, there was a whole load of absolute ridiculous demands, but people are ridiculous and very entitled and, you know, Massively. highly you know expectant. This is actually, uh, obviously, it's a very gender career path as well, right? So I think like 90, got to be 99.9% .9 of people who do any kind of nanny work um, are going to be female. So I think like men have never done this. Like, I've obviously never been a nanny. I guess you haven't either. Um, so we would have never encounter this type of employer. Um, so, so, so anybody listening to this, I'd be interested to know, have you had some nanny experience and do you, do you have any stories to tell? about how, how irrational uh, these parents might be in terms of taking care of these kids. Um, I, I'm, unfortunately, my uh, I'm, just reading that has kind of made me be a bit more contemptuous of these innocent children as well, in the sense that they're obviously, I just can't, can't not think of them as being like entitled brats now um, that have to be uh, uh, treated in this way. Um, crazy talk. Anyway, unrealistic hiring expectations happens in the domestic realm as well um so listen if you enjoyed um that uh, uh talk through the newsletter make sure you read the newsletter it's available for anybody to freely subscribe recruitingbrainfood.com uh, uh comes out every sunday uh we're gonna try and do this show every week i think next week is, uh, we're gonna skip because uh, adam you're on holiday i believe um and actually i'm out of the uk as well so i'm not on holiday but I i'd struggle to do it because i'm on a flight um but um but yes, yeah, so have a good holiday. Um, where are you going, by the way? Uh, we're going on a cruise, so Mediterranean. Oh. Right, very nice, very very nice. Um, get a bit of winter sun. Um, so. Yep. Yeah, so enjoy that, mate. And uh, yeah, thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you on Brain Food Lab this Friday. I'm going to be doing it from uh, from Lisbon, um, and uh, we're going to be talking about blockchain, Web three, and the future of work. Because um, I'll be at the future dot works conference um and i'm going to try and do it from the floor there um so expect some background noise and excitement uh this friday all right folks that's it awesome. uh thanks for watching we'll see you uh on friday bye